to the building of the first pizza hut than she did to the building of the pyramids. Did you know that? Yeah. She lived closer to the building of the first pizza than the pyramids. In other words, the pyramids are, were as old to the ancient Romans as the Romans are to us. By the way, when the pyramids were uh, built, uh, woolly mammoths still walked on the earth. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Well, it, it's really interesting to me. Just me, apparently. <laughs> Okay, here's, here's one. I bet you didn't know. What is the closest U.S. state to Africa? The closest U.S. state to Africa. Anybody got an idea? I heard Florida. You want to know what it is? Maine. Maine. Someone said it. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Maine. You wouldn't think that. Um, Here's an interesting fact. You wouldn't think it's true, but it is true. If you put your finger in your ear and scratch, it sounds just like (laughs) Pac-Man. There you go. There's people doing this. All nonchalant. That's true. Wow. Interesting factoid for you Jessicas out there. The name Jessica was created by Shakespeare in the play Merchant of Venice. Invented right there. There you go. You're welcome. Oxford University. Another factoid you wouldn't think is true. Oxford University is older than the Aztec Empire. Oxford, in, yeah, Oxford, founded in 1249. Here's, here's an interesting, a little gruesome. Uh, France was still guillotining people when the first Star Wars film came out. Yeah, the, the, the last guy in France to get guillotined was after Star Wars. Um, New York City is further south than Rome, Italy. Did not know that. Interesting things. Um, there are more fake flamingos in the world than real flamingos. <laughs> it is true. A good portion of them are on my street. I love my neighbors, but come on with the flank flamingos. Uh, ladies, it rains diamonds on Saturn and Jupiter. Rains diamonds on Saturn and Jupiter. So plan your next vacation. Okay, last one, because I know you, I could tell you want so many more, but this is going to be my last one. Every two minutes, we take more pictures than all of humanity in the 19th century. Put together. Every 10 minutes, we take more pictures on the planet Earth than all of humanity did in the 19th century. Interesting, right? And most of those are our food, <laughs> what we're eating at the moment. Yeah, interesting. Okay, all right. In- interesting stuff. Factoids, things you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't think are true but are actually true. Um, now, we've been in a series for the for past couple of weeks. We started a couple of weeks ago called Relentless Joy. And this series, uh, we've been looking, walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And let's see if I can get this to come up here. Uh-oh, uh, I'll work on that. There we go. All right. So we've been walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And wh- here, here's a little factoid that you wouldn't think is true, but we have discovered it is actually true. And that is that you can actually go through struggles and even 
suffering and still maintain relentless joy. You wouldn't think that would be true, but we're finding out through this letter from Paul that it is true. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? So, uh, I want to point something out today. Uh, today, we're, we're all the way into chapter 2. So, if you have your Bibles, you can get there. We're going to read the first 11 verses or so of chapter 2 today. Um, I want to point something out ahead of time for us to be looking out for that will help us out a lot. Everything in this passage, all of the verbs, all the nouns, uh, everything in this passage somehow speak of community, of what the church can accomplish together, right? Not what separate individuals can accomplish by themselves. We want to remember this letter was written to a church. It was written to the entire church of Philippi. And in fact, it would have been read aloud to the whole congregation. The whole family would have gathered around and they would have read this letter aloud. And I say this because we have this tendency in our our modern age to read the Bible as individuals, right? I do the same thing. Um, And so we read the Bible as individuals and that's, that's okay. We should be reading the Bible, but we tend to read it all with, through the eyes of individuals. And there's several reasons for that. The number one reason is, is, is our, my, my father-in-law Dale's favorite historical figure, Gutenberg, right? <laughs> Gutenberg. He, he printed the Bible, and he, since old Gutenberg, we all have our own Bible, Right? Just about everybody has, either has their own Bible or has easy access to a Bible. Even if you've got a phone, you have access to a free app that has the Bible. That just would have been unimaginable in Jesus' day. The idea that each one of us would have our own copy of this incredible library of 66 holy books that make up the Bible right? Because that's what the Bible is. It's, it's actually a library of 66 books. And, and the idea that each one of us would have our own copy was just They couldn't even imagine it. That wasn't the case when it was written. When the Bible was written, it wasn't the case. And so the voice that Scripture speaks with, it doesn't always sound like intimate one-on-one language. Sometimes there there are some that are very intimate Scriptures, but a lot of the Scripture, it's not really intimate one-on-one language because it wasn't meant for that. It was meant for a crowd. It was meant to be spoken aloud. And, and that can create some awkwardness sometimes when you're reading Scripture. Uh, when we read it, if we don't take into account the, the humanity-wide scale of its intended audience. There's some things that are just said, even today. There's, there's great speeches that were made, and they were meant for an audience, right? Ask not what your country can do for you, right? That was, that was meant for a grand audience. It'd be kind of weird for me to like sit at dinner, you know, my wife, we're at a romantic little restaurant, the lights are low, the candle's lit, I reach across her tiny little hand and I hold it and, and I whisper, ask not what your country should do for you, what you can do for your country, right? It's awkward, it's weird. You feel awkward right now, right? <laughs> I know Mel does, Yeah. You know, little, little, you know, little sweet nothings, you know, four score and seven years ago. No, those things were meant to be shouted. You know, our forefathers came upon this great land, whatever. You know, the, these things. There's things that were meant to be shouted out, great speeches or from great plays or something. Onward into battle, men, right? Cry havoc. Let's slip the dogs of war. These are awesome, famous. It would be really awkward if you were at work. And you're, you know, you're passing Bob in the hallway. Hey, Bob, good luck at that meeting today. Uh, cry havoc, let's slip the dogs of war. 
You'd be like, thanks, Dave. You know, you'd wonder, what, what is Bob on? What is Dave on, rather? Yeah, so there's the, these words were meant for an audience. And so we have our own Bible. We have our Bible, and that's good. I'm glad of it. We should do our own Bible study. We should make use of that blessing. At the same time, not ignore the, the communal aspect that much of Scripture was written with in mind. So Christians uh, of the early church, when they would learn, when Christians in uh, that first century, when they would learn, they always had to learn together. It was something you did together, right? They gathered around. They heard these words together. And they would wrestle with what, you know, what does that mean? Hey, what? Wow, what, what does Paul mean when he's telling us that? What did Jesus, what does he say in there? Wow, how does, how does that, what does that mean for us? And so everything was always in us when it came to Bible study. It's always in us. What does Jesus' teaching mean for us? What is Paul saying to us? And it's tempting for us to take our Bibles today, to take them off kind of by ourselves, and it just becomes a me. It's a me. And so I just say it because it's a tendency that we have to push back against here in our culture. It's just something we, we, we just have to. One of the verses we're going to look at today is verse 5. For instance, in verse 5 of chapter 2 of Philippians, um, a good example of this, in the New Living Translation, which I love the living, but in the New Living it says, you must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Okay, that sounds nice. In the King James of that same verse, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And we get to the American Standard. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So it's easy for us to read that and go, all right. I need to have this mind in me that was in Christ Jesus. These are all great translations, and I love them. But on this particular point, on this particular point, they don't really bring to the surface what the Greek is emphasizing. And that is that the you in Greek, is plural. If this was a good southern translation, this would be y'all. Right? We need a southern translation, right? And so it's really, it's really good. This is just a side note. It's really good. When you're studying the Bible or when you're studying it with friends or you're getting together with your family or just you're even you're yourself, but when you're studying the Bible, use different translations. That's a wonderful way uh, to kind of get a real sense of what the Scripture is saying, of what the, the spirit of the Scripture is saying, because sometimes you'll come across several different translations, and some of them will really speak uh, what's really trying to get across. So, so to better understand the spirit of this message, in this case— you, you, you have the intent of the words better expressed in other translations. In this case, for instance, in the NIV, it says, in your relationships with one another. It, it more perfectly mimics the, the Greek. It's have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another. Another good translation that pulls it out is the, the English Standard Version. It says, have this mind among yourselves. See, it has a different feel now, right? There's a difference there, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. You get the sense now, I'm not the only one in the room. It's, It's not just me. And so Paul's expressing you as a church, in your relationships, as you gather, should have this this mind of Christ in a spirit of unity. He's not saying, hey, you over there in in the corner, you try to think happy Jesus thoughts. And, And you too. I see it. Happy Jesus thoughts for you, okay? Just keep thinking those thoughts. No, no, no. What he's saying is, as a church, we should be rallied by this one mind, one attitude, one heart, 
And that is how we as a body of Christ, we model for the world uh, this, the gospel. We understand that this sets the tone for everything that Paul is talking about. So I just kind of wanted to give that little uh, preface there. Okay, everybody in chapter 2. Chapter 2, like I said, we're going to read the first 11 verses. Uh, Paul spent chapter 1 talking to the Philippians. Uh, he touched on his own suffering, what was going on, and now he begins to connect it with theirs. He tells them that, that you know, you're going through the same thing I'm going through. There's going to be some rough times ahead, but stay united, stay strong. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore... Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. So Paul mentions four things here right off the bat. Look at this. Uh, Paul, Paul is sure of. He's sure of these four things. The word if in Greek can also uh, be translated sense. Since these things are true, since these four things are true, and I know you're experiencing them in some degree. At first he says, if there be any encouragement. Encouragement is this word paraklesis in the Greek, paraklesis. And it's a beautiful word. It means it's like a call of joy done by somebody who walks close beside you. Someone who comes alongside you and calls out joy. This is, the idea is like, imagine if you were in a marathon. Oh, and you're tired, you're giving out, and someone walks right beside you. They come beside you and says, you can do it. You can do it. You're almost there. You're almost to the finish line. Keep going. That's periclesis. Then he says, if there's any comfort. This is a neat word. It's paramithion. Paramithion. It's consoling with soothing words. Consoling with soothing words. If you notice right there in the middle of that, that Greek word is the word myth. And the word myth just meant really story. It didn't necessarily mean what we think of myth as like something untrue. It meant story. It just meant story. So it literally, it's telling someone a soothing story to remind them it's going to be okay. You're coming along somebody. You can do it. You can make it. You're almost at the end. Way to go. And you're com- giving them the soothing story to remind them it's going to be okay. The third thing he mentions here, common sharing. We've looked at this word. This is koinonia. And here it's translated common sharing, but it's koinonia, that fellowship and partnership in the Spirit. We talked a good deal about that over the last two weeks, so I won't go too much more into that. Uh, Next, he mentions tenderness and compassion. Tenderness. This word, you might recognize it. It's splachna. Sounds a lot like Splagnon, right? Right. That, that, that feeling, the, and it literally means affection from the bowels. It's, it's this deep-seated affection is that tenderness, splankna. And then t- compassion is an interesting word. It means compassion. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> it does. It means compassion. Right. Uh, especially like in terms of, of um, pity, pity towards somebody's misfortune. So you have compassion for it. You, you feel pity towards them. So, so Paul says, since these four conditions are present among you, and he goes to verse 2, then make my joy complete. Basically, he's saying, make my day. Make my day. Make my joy complete. And now Paul gives them some further instructions how they can turn up the volume. By, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Notice all the unity language. Do you see it? Right? 
like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one in mind, unity language. He just keeps coming back. He's just pounding at home. And when he says one mind here, it's important for us to understand he's not saying, he's not talking about, hey, everybody, think the same thing, have the same opinions. He's not, that's not what he's saying at all. It's this word. The word is phreneo. It's a beautiful word, phreneo, and it means to decipher or to, to seek after, to care for the same things. If you and I are seeking after, we're caring about the same things, we're after the same thing. In other words, we are on one mission. We care for the same things. We're seeking after the same things. We might have different opinions. We might have different opinions, but we're seeking after the same thing. We're walking as one, right? We're, we're on a shared common goal. So we might, be bring, we might bring in different thoughts, different, a different take on the, on the subject. We might bring a different skill set to the table or something like that, but we are on one mission for Neo. And then in one spirit, literally, it means united in our soul of one spirit. So for Paul, unity is his goal. Unity is his goal. It's, it's going to happen through humility. He talks in a minute about considering others better than yourself. So it's unity through humility, and it's motivated by joy, motivated by this relentless joy. Unity through humility, motivated by joy. Let's say this together. I want us to say this together, okay? One, two, three. Unity through humility, motivated by joy. Unity through humility, motivated by joy. That's what, how it's going to happen. But now, let me push this one step further. Let, let's take this to, to the land of awesome, okay? Let's go from good to great. It's not just unity, not just unity, you know, detached. It's unity in koinonia, okay? It's unity in relationship, in purpose, coming together to accomplish a mission, and that mission is spreading the message of Jesus. That's where our unity is. It's spreading the message of Jesus. It's christ centric unity. See, just unity alone isn't good enough. That's not the goal. Unity alone can get you in trouble, right? The Nazis were really unified in World War II, well unified, and they accomplished hell on earth by being so unified. You can have unity to accomplish all kinds of things, good and bad. The goal is unity achieved in the spreading of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Verse 3. Where are we? Here we go. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He has two little phrases in here. This phrase, selfish ambition. It's this word, erythrian. And it literally means, it's more military language. It means uh, like a military mercenary. It's a mercenary. A, A gun for hire. Someone who fights for pay. It's So the picture is you got a bunch of people A bunch of us are in battle. They have a common cause. They're laying down their lives for this common ideal. But one among them isn't in it for the cause. He's just in it for the paycheck. There's one among them in it for the paycheck. And he'll slash and burn anything that gets close close to him so he can meet his quota. And he doesn't care who gets hurt around him. Right? It's just collateral damage. That's this mercenary spirit. And then he says, or vain conceit. Vain conceit is this word, kenodoxia, and which is from these two words, keno and doxia, and they mean hollow and worthless, and then glory, hollow or worthless glory. It's literally boasting over nothing, when there's nothing there to boast about. 
boasting over nothing. This makes me think of reality TV shows, right? People who are famous for being famous, basically, right? This is, this is our, our modern-day example of kenodoxia. So don't be a religious mercenary just in it to get a paycheck. Don't get into this empty boasting. Rather, he says, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others, The Greek here again for this others, it stresses the communal nature of this. It's a word that we've talked about uh, in years past in different sermons. Uh, This word is alelon, alelon, and and it's plural. Again, it's plural. It's not just value one person better than yourself. It's value all others better than yourself. Now, that's a challenge, right? He's telling us to value all others better than yourself. Literally, esteem everybody, esteem everyone better than yourselves. Everybody, esteem everyone else better than yourself, right? So there's just all kinds of esteeming going on, right? It's like Humility Fest 2015. That's what, you know, that's, and, and this is the picture of a community that is, that is others-focused, that is generous, it is always deferring to each other, deferring to other people. Now remember, Paul is talking to a community. He's talking to a faith community. He's not talking to just isolated individuals. So he's saying this is going to be the hallmark of your church. This is going to be the culture. This ought to be the culture of your church. Everybody deferring. Everybody esteeming others, right? Everybody having each other's back. Because our tendency, we have to remember, is always going to be to drift off into egocentric mode. That's going to be our tendency, so we, we, have to, we have to force ourselves back, force ourselves, ourselves back. And, and so here's the cool thing is while you're thinking of the needs of others, if it's working right, they'll be thinking of your needs as well. Everybody has each other's back. That's how it's supposed to look when we're doing it right. You can think of it like um, actors in a play, a stage play. How many of you have ever been in a play? You've got to act in a play. Maybe it was high school or college or community or something. You got to be in a play, right? In a, in a play, it's very important. The ultimate goal is the success of the production, right? That's what everybody's out for. You want the success of, of the play. So if somebody forgets their line, you're on stage, and somebody, you know, you're talking to the other character, and they forget their line, what do you do? You, you whisper it to them, right? You whisper, here's your line. Cry havoc. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Right? Everybody on stage doesn't, like, make a big face and look at the audience and go, what a moron. Right? No. Right? Because it's, it's, it's all about the play. It's all about the good of the play. Because it's for the good of the story. That is what it's about. The important thing is that the story gets told. And our story is the story of Christ. It's not about me shining. It's not about you shining. It's about Jesus shining. That's what we want. That is, so, so it's never about like, well, did I win the debate? Who cares? Did I have the cleverest answers in small group? Who cares? Right? Can I out-argue people from other denominations, other churches? Who cares? That's not about, that's not Christian maturity. That, the body of Christ, the church, needs to cheer for each other's success. We want to make each other look good. The goal is, not to, is, is that the audience never knows that you had to whisper that line to him, right? 
We want to make each other look good because their success means the name of Christ is being made famous. Does that make any sense? That's especially true of, of uh, comedy. You guys ever watch, uh, like, Whose Line Is It Anyway? The, the show that used to be on? It's improv. Improv comedy. Oh, it's, I, I can't even imagine how they do it, right? It's not, I don't have that bone in my body. But in improv, the number one secret I've heard them say to improv comedy is give and take. You got to have people on the stage who know how to give and take, right? Uh, so, so it's not just necessarily having the funniest people on the stage. You could have a lot of funny people. Or having the best joke when it comes to improv. It's people who are willing not to have the punchline. That's what makes uh, you know, a really good bit. Somebody's, somebody's got to be the one that throws up the alley-oop so someone else can slam, it dunk, slam dunk at home, right? So, so that's, that's it, this idea. We're partners in this. We're partners in this Christian unity. It's not just an abstract goal. It's not just some sort of pie-in-the-sky thing we're talking about. It's the result of our common focus on our common cause. Now, let's back up a second. Back up a second. I, wanna, I want us to think about something. Remember who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a church in first-century Roman Empire, the city of Philippi. This isn't some cushy suburban church, you know, in like Tuscany or the Woodlands, <laughs> right? This is not a cushy suburban church. He's talking to people who are being persecuted for living their faith, okay? There is a Caesar ruling the empire. You know, we can gripe about our leaders. We have no idea. There's a Caesar ruling the empire who demands to be worshipped like a god, Right? Nero, he is a psychopathic tyrant. He literally demands everyone call him Lord and Savior. That was the, the propaganda of the day. Lord and Savior. Sound familiar? It's exactly what he asked people to call him. But here's the church in Philippi going, wait a minute, Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. And so you have people in this church of Philippi who are being thrown into prison because they follow Christ. And they're making themselves enemies of the state. Not just a little bit of persecution at work. Somebody made fun of them. They're enemies of the state. People are literally being dragged out of their homes, crucified. And Paul's trying to encourage them. And he said in the last chapter, I know you're going through the same thing that I'm facing, the same struggle. He called it the same struggle. But all of a sudden, now here's, here's where pitches. This is kind of cool. All of a sudden, he goes into this strongly worded warning to stay unified, to stay humble. Be nice to each other. Serve each other. How do we get from, yeah, yeah, there's this Roman Empire out there, and serving Christ might get you killed. How do we get from that to value each other above yourselves in relationship? Right? Paul doesn't offer them tips on how to avoid arrest. That's what you would think. Right? That would be really valuable, Paul. You know, give us some tips. No, no secretly coded messages on where to meet if you've got to flee your homes in the middle of the night. No, it's be of one mind, one soul, one spirit, in humility. For Paul, apparently, the real challenge isn't ultimately the, the political empire that threatened Christians with prison and death. For Paul, the real struggle 
has to do with you and you and you and you staying in one mind, one soul, one spirit, and looking to the interests of each other more than ourselves. Apparently, our unity is a greater cause to fight for than the politics or security or some outside threat. Our unity. I mean, let that sink in for a minute. Paul's like, guys, guys, okay, the Romans are coming. The Romans are coming. They might try to kill us. Is everyone being kind to each other? Is everybody being cool? Is everybody being sweet? Are we walking as one? Not, does everyone have an escape route? Does everyone have plenty of bottled water and cash? That's, you know, that's what we'd be thinking. Not like, okay, they're coming. Is everyone being nice? This is what Paul says. Why? Why does he, why is this what he's emphasizing? I would argue for Paul, what is going on inside us, the growth that is happening in here is an infinitely more important story than whatever is happening outside. What's happening inside us is a more important story than any of the circumstances happening around us. You and I as a church, see, we can run, we can launch, I was, I was reminded of this this week, we can launch the greatest ideas, we can have the best ideas and have the greatest intentions for some great new thing. And if we have not love and unity, it will crash and burn. The best ideas, the best intentions. If you don't have love and unity, it'll crash and burn. And so he says in verse 5, what we looked at in the beginning, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude as Christ Jesus. Among yourselves, have this Christ-like mindedness. Now, this is a neat part right here because Paul is about to break out into song. You don't picture Paul like doing a little number, but he does. He breaks out into song. He's not just a preacher. He's a poet. It could be a poem. Uh, a lot of scholars think what Paul is, is quoting here is actual, an actual church hymn of the day, and he's quoting it to them. Or he could be creating this originally, but it does seem to be in the form of a, of a first century song in the Greek. It's got meter. It's got you know, a beat. You could dance to it. So uh, here it is. Verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for his own advantage. It, this, this whole section here we're about to read, it's a fascinating how much theological discussion has happened. And sadly, a lot of arguments over, have been launched over the last 2,000 years over, over this line right here. Who, being in the very nature God. This word nature is this wonderful word, morphe, morphe, kind of like morph. We, we would think we, you can tell where it's going. It means form or shape, the form of God, the form of God. But this word is really unique in the Greek because there's another word in the Greek, schema, that means to look like, you know, like to put on a mask. That's schema. But this word, morphe, it literally means an outer form that is in complete harmony with the inner substance. That's the, that's the meaning of this word. So it's not just he's putting on like a fake mask here. It's an outer form that is in complete harmony with the inner substance. So Jesus doesn't just look like God. He possesses the full character, the full essence of God, the qualities of who God is. He's the reality of who God is. Jesus is God. 
And it, but it says he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped for his own advantage. This is a really interesting phrase. It's harpagmos, harpagmos, this grasping for its own advantage. We get the word harpoon, right? Something sent out to grab it and pull it back, right? This is from the same root. It, literally, it's a prize that you use to manipulate for your advantage, a prize that you used to manipulate for your advantage. In Greek literature back, then, back in the day, it was used a lot of times for somebody who already had a lot of something, and they would wanted to use it to manipulate the situation for their own good. And so, it, uh, like I said, it's, it's that word for, for harpoon. So in literature, they would use it commonly for someone connected. It would be connected with wealth or riches, wealth and riches. So it would be this idea of someone using that wealth just to gain more wealth, so they could use that to gain more wealth. And that idea, they would just keep pulling in. That is the example of harpagmos, harpagmos. Using what you have to benefit yourself instead of using it as a blessing to others. Now, this is going to come into play later. In verse 7, it says, Rather, so Jesus didn't engage in harpagmos. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Paul says that Jesus models this. He's God. He's God down to the core, down to the very nature, but he doesn't use that status for himself. You notice in the Bible, when you're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we don't see him like shooting down lightning bolts, you know, like Zeus at people, right? He's not going around screaming, worship me, right? He's not doing that. Satan even tempts him to kind of do that. Satan's like, hey, jump up from off the top, and everybody will be like, woo, and they'll worship you. You know, do something really impressive. Jesus, do this, and everyone will kneel before you in fear. Jesus says, that's not my purpose. It's not my purpose. It's not my method. I'm, I'm going to take on the form of a servant. It says he made himself nothing. This is... this phrase here is so rich and so powerful. It literally, it means literally that he emptied himself. This word, echinosin, he emptied himself. The word means to empty yourself of anything of value, to empty something of what is valuable, to be made in human likeness. This picture that Paul gives us, the emptying of Christ, it gives, it's so rich. It answers so many questions that we might have of how Jesus operated in the gospels. I mean, think about all the stories you've heard about Jesus in the gospel. So often, one of the struggles that we have, and I've had before, when we read about Jesus, he obviously has the heart of God, but there are times he doesn't seem to, you notice he doesn't seem to operate with all the godlike lightning-throwing powers that we would associate with God. For one thing, Jesus shows us something that God the Father never could, humility. There is no humility in God the Father. There doesn't need to be, Right? There shouldn't be, but he becomes a man, and he is able to show us something that seems like a contradiction, that is divine humility, divine humility. How can that even be? And Jesus shows it to us. Another obvious godlike characteristic, that quality we, we, we see missing in the Gospels is that Jesus isn't omnipresent when he walks around, right? So when he's in one place, when Jesus is in one place, he's not in another He's not in another. There's this wonderful story of his, when he, his friend Lazarus dies while he's traveling. And uh, Martha gets really upset with him and says, if you had been here and not there, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Right? 
And notice Jesus doesn't go, oh, no, no, no. I've been here all along. You just didn't know. <laughs> no, he doesn't because he, he wasn't there. He was over here, right? But now he's there and he raises Lazarus from the dead. There's other examples that we see in the, in the scriptures that if you don't understand this emptying, this willingly laying aside of some, some of the, the powers that he could use, uh, our Jehovah's Witnesses, Jehovah Witness friends, they will often say, well, Jesus, he, he couldn't be God because he didn't know everything. We have accounts where he, he acted like he didn't know everything. This understanding of Jesus emptying himself, Christ voluntarily laying aside certain divine powers, it helps us understand this, right? It was something Jesus did willingly for the purpose of the mission. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. He said, I'm going to submit myself to the will of the Father. For instance, Scripture doesn't say that he was born knowing everything, Right? In fact, there's a scripture where it says that he grew in knowledge and he grew in wisdom as a child and a young man. He grew, right? I have a feeling Jesus probably had to be potty trained, right? He, you know, he grew in this stuff. There were things that the father just didn't always tell him. There's a wonderful passage where he's talking with his friends, the disciples, about the time when he'll be coming back. And they ask him, when will you return, Lord? Lord, when are you going to return? And how does he respond? He says, guys, I don't know. For real. He says, not even the angels in heaven know. Only the Father knows. There's even a time it says that, it says that he could not perform miracles in one town because of their lack of faith. Now, could Jesus have chosen to operate in any of these divine attributes? Absolutely, because he's God. He was God. He could have chosen, but it wasn't part of his mission. Just like there was a time where he said, when he's being crucified, he said, don't you think I could call down a legion of angels, right? I could have an impressive moment right now if I wanted. So he said he could have, but he didn't. He didn't walk in that. So it doesn't make him less divine. In fact, there's many things that he did that, that could only be divine. I was talking with Dad about this earlier. Things like forgiving people's sins. That you have to be God to do that. He forgave people's sins. Even the Jews called him a heretic because they knew nobody can forgive sins except for God. And he did forgive sins. So this is what's so mind-boggling about Jesus when I read about him. He willingly emptied himself for us, set these powers aside, taking the form of a servant, for you and for me. And that's so beautiful because that means that when Jesus came, he didn't just come and float five inches off the ground pretending to be a person, pretending to be a man. He was a man. He was human, 100% human, 100% God. It's a, it's a mystery, but willingly not exercising some divine powers. Okay, let's keep going. Paul's song continues in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What's fascinating here is that Paul, if you notice those first couple of verses there, he gives this, this, grad, this picture of gradual descent for Jesus. It's this gradual descent. He made himself nothing, the nature of a servant, human likeness, humbling himself further, obedient to death, even death on a cross. You have to understand, the cross... The cross is the ultimate symbol 
in Paul's world of shame and humiliation and, and degradation. Roman citizens could not even be crucified on a cross. The Jews saw the cross as a sign of being under God's curse. It was just the worst horrible thing. Basically, basically, if you found yourself hanging on a cross, it means you could not have possibly made worse choices in life, right, in the Roman world. That was reserved for, for the worst of the worst. And scholars tell us even mentioning the word cross or crucifixion, it was taboo in Roman society. In the Latin, it's, it's crux. They wouldn't even utter it. You didn't speak of it because of the horror and the degradation of the, of the cross, the crux. And Paul is shouting it. He's shouting what's basically a swear word, right? He's shouting it out. Even death on a, oh, you know what's coming, cross, right? Beep. Nope, the censors missed it. He's, he got it out, right? Even death on a cross. And now Paul juxtaposes this path of descent that we see in verse 7 and 8 against a reverse picture of, of resurrection and exaltation. We get to verse 9. He says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Basically right there, that's poetical language for basically heaven, hell, earth, air, all that is, literally all that is. Verse 11, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is a reference to Isaiah 45. It's almost word for word in Isaiah 45. It says, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. In Isaiah 45, it's speaking of the Lord God, Jehovah, and Paul brilliantly says, yeah, yeah, actually, that's talking about Jesus Christ. Amen? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The beauty of this story, this story about Jesus that Paul is telling, is that in many ways, it is the undoing of Adam. It's the undoing of Adam. Think about it. Adam was made in the likeness of God. He was given Lots of authority. He was given authority. Adam and Eve were given lordship over this planet. They were made masters of creation. But of course, Jesus comes along and he teaches us. He teaches us that being masters of something, being a leader, it means that you serve. You're a steward. It's a humble approach. Jesus comes with this humble servant approach. That's the heart of God. And while Adam and Eve used their riches and used their responsibilities, they, they, they were given riches and responsibilities, they used those riches to do what? To grasp for more riches, to grasp for more wisdom, right? They, they indulged in that harpagmos. While they did that, Christ goes the other way. He goes the path of descent. Christ is the reversal of Adam, the redemption of Adam. He's the, he's the redemption of man. Where Adam failed through pride and then is brought down low, Jesus comes on the scene. He succeeds through his humility and is exalted on high. It's the reversal of Adam. The undoing of Adam. Jesus comes and he presses the reset button for humanity. Hallelujah. He shows us not only the heart of God, but also this example of, of what a human life should look like when it's lived pleasing to God. 
So the life of Christ for us, it's not just for us to analyze. We don't just look at it to analyze how it shows us God. But also, that is true. We, we get to glimpse the, the nature of God. But we also look at the life of Christ so we can see how to live. How to live. That is, is where we've got to land the plane today. It's not just discussing theology and theories about the nature of God. The whole point of what Paul is writing is, is let that mind be in you together as a church. Have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. I want to finish this morning by reading another scripture. It's from another letter of Paul. This one to the church in Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he wrote to them, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. What a beautiful summary of everything that Paul has been teaching in a nutshell. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what he did. He gave up what he had. He gave up his abundance, his riches. And riches are are one of the ways that Jesus uh, actually challenges us to follow his example. Riches. He, he, he set aside his spiritual riches, his powers, to walk among us and be a blessing to the world. So how do we as Christians today, how do we steward our riches? Because we're so very blessed, aren't we? We're so very blessed. How do we steward our riches? How do we use our power? How do we follow this example of Christ to use what you and I have been blessed with for good? How do we use it for good rather than harpagmosing for ourselves the stuff that we get so we can have more and more and secure for ourselves more comfort, more security, more power for ourselves? How do we practice radical generosity, radical humility, radical love and relationship so that we can accomplish more for Christ? Tell the story that matters. How do we do that as a church body together instead of a bunch of random individuals running around on a stage trying to hog the spotlight. Because there's a greater story that I, that I have to tell. It's a greater story than just the story of me. You have a greater story to tell than just the story of you. It's the gospel of Christ. It's the story of Jesus Christ. Let me just say that one more time, what I said before. Remember, we can have the best ideas. We can have lots of zeal. But if we have not love and unity, if we don't have each other's backs, we are yelling at the wind. We're sheep without a shepherd. So the question is, what can we accomplish together? What can we accomplish united? What can you do this week as a member of the church, arm in arm with your brothers and sisters here? See, understand what I'm, I'm challenging you to break away from thinking like an isolated island. I'm challenging you to not do that. Think like part of a body. Think like you're part of a community of faith and love and mission, right? And you and I, if we do that, we will accomplish so much more than any of us could by ourselves. Amen? I, I need to grow in this area, and maybe you do too. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. I thank you, Father, for what you're showing us in these scriptures. 
I thank you, Lord God, that you are helping us to see ourselves the way you see us and help us to remember that we are part of the body of Christ. We are part of of your hands and feet in this world, Lord God, that we are telling a story that is bigger than us, Father, and that you are with us, and that whatever we may come against, that we we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to be ashamed, we don't have to fear, Father, because you are with us, and you are going to show us the next right step. I thank you for that, Lord God. Praise you, Lord God. Help us to be united. Help us to see ourselves united. Help us to reject any hint of strife or backbiting or anything like that, Father God. Help us to be united. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I ask our prayer partners to come forward at this time. And while they're coming here, because they, they these are some incredible prayer warriors. Mary's amazing team of prayer warriors. Hallelujah. Come forward and get prayer if there's anything you need. Let me say this to you. May you, this week, pursue authentic relationships with one another. Pursue authentic relationships with one another. And in those relationships, may you have the same attitude of humility and unity as Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. We'll go enjoy lunch. Y'all have a wonderful week. We'll see you later.
my heart desires to know 